Welcome to Civil Discourse, a public affairs production of Gila Mimbres Community Radio, KURU 89.1 FM. I'm your host, Jamie Newton. Our topic is Nonviolence is Powerful. Both of my guests are Silver City residents with years of experience as community activists dedicated to nonviolence and to the values associated with nonviolence such as truth, integrity, equality, cooperation, inclusiveness, and respect for every person. They'll help us understand how nonviolent strategies and action campaigns can empower grassroots groups to address challenges that confront us all today. As always, the views expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent Gila Mimbres Community Radio. Laura Ramnerace holds a master's degree in conflict resolution from Antioch University. She's provided mediation, conflict intervention services, and training for action in many contexts. Welcome, Laura Ramnerace. Thank you, Jamie. Alicia Edwards is a Grant County Commissioner representing District 3. She was the founding executive director of the Volunteer Center, which works to end hunger and poverty in Grant County, and she is the coordinator for Healthy Kids, Healthy Communities, Grant County. Welcome, Alicia Edwards. Thanks, Jamie. Delightful to have you both with us. I'd like you to begin by giving our listeners examples of effective nonviolence situations you've experienced or you know about where community groups, national groups have achieved a great deal through explicit committed nonviolence. Who would like to speak first? I think I'm going first. (laughs) Please. Well, I think the one that comes to my mind immediately is when ACT UP threw condoms around uh, St. Peter's Basilica during a Sunday morning service to bring awareness to the AIDS crisis. It was a shocking event, and people were absolutely horrified that they would do such a thing. But it was extremely effective. People talked about it nationally and in the world press, and it really changed the trajectory of that movement. So they would have been required to interpret their action. Their action was intended in some ways to to be outrageous. That's why it got so much attention. Some people were seriously offended and then had to be brought around. Is that particularly challenging, do you think? I think it is. But I think in this movement, there are many different ways of bringing attention to something. And I think it takes, oftentimes it takes shock in the in the beginning because people have to be shocked awake so to speak i don't think any one particular activity uh, changes things i think it's a combination of many activities but that event brought a topic that had been off the public agenda front and center and generated that's dialogue. right that's yes. exactly right and i think the generating dialogue is the key part there laura what can you tell us Well, there's a a lot of examples all over the world of successful nonviolent movements. Of course, everyone knows about Gandhi in India and Martin Luther King here and Mandela in South Africa. Not as many people are aware of the movement called Otpor in Serbia, which was a completely nonviolent movement, very strategic, well-organized And they were able to liberate Serbia from the dictator Slobodan Milosevic successfully. And they are now, some of those leaders, including Serge Popovic, are doing work in training people to use their methods and and strategies. 
Could you expand a little bit about how they did that? There were also violent actors in Serbia at the time trying to overthrow the dictator, were there not? Well, I'm sure there were... (laughs) There was a lot of people doing a lot of things, yes. but it was their movement that that managed to really turn the tides. And they're really well known for using something that they call laftivism, uh, using humor as a way to make change. And so, for instance, people were feeling very scared of acting up openly, and so they took a big, they were trying to think of something to do. They took a big barrel, a a 55-gallon barrel, and pasted the image of Slobodan Milosevic on it. And they wanted to give people a way to just express their feelings of frustration Mm -hmm. in a nonviolent way. And so they put a little cut in the top of the, the barrel and a sign that said that, you know, if you put so much money in it, so many coins, you can take a slug at him, at his image. And they put a baseball bat there. And then the people who did that just disappeared into a cafe. So when the police showed up and people people started doing it and they were kind of laughing and it was a way to just express some of what they had been feeling in a safe manner for everybody. And then the police showed up, and then they got some great photos of the police arresting this barrel (laughs) and hauling it off. So that was another creative tactic. Yeah. I've heard you both talk about comparisons between violent and nonviolent movements for social change. And I think one of the challenging very deep beliefs that many Americans have, at least, is that there never will be a truly peaceful world because human beings are inherently aggressive. And so we will always have violence and war among us. People who adhere to a nonviolent discipline may be admirable, but they're probably also a little unrealistic. So I hope you both will address that directly. What is the hope for effective nonviolence ultimately getting us out of this spiral upward of conflict, aggression, retribution? And what basis is there for saying that nonviolence can be as effective or more effective than violence? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because... There's recent research by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan that demonstrates that strategic nonviolent action is more than twice as likely to result in success than using violence. Their study, I think, was published in 2011, and it included included every major violent and nonviolent campaign for the overthrow of a government or territorial liberation from 1900 to 2006. The data covered the entire world and every known case where there were at least 1,000 participants. That's well over 300 cases. They found that 46% of the nonviolent campaigns succeeded and only 20% of the violent campaigns succeeded, even in the most brutally repressive regimes. And that's a very important point, isn't it? That nonviolence is not applicable only where the power holders are well-behaved people who wouldn't think of sending in violent repressive forces to tackle the movement. 
This yes. is effective nonviolence against very serious, one might say, ruthless adversaries. Yes, and that's a very common misconception. I come across that a lot. The American Civil Rights Movement is a very good example, as is the women's suffrage movement, where women were very brutally treated for demanding the right to vote. What a radical idea. Yeah, and um, the non the nonviolent campaigns were on average four times larger, had four times greater participation in the population than the violent ones. I think Alicia had some points to make about that. The three point five percent. So the studies show that it only takes three point five percent of the population uh, to be engaged in nonviolent movement to create change. And bringing that to the local perspective, that means that in Grant County, we need 1,050 people to be actively involved in uh, a movement to create change. And, you know, that's a relatively small number of people that can create a tremendous amount of change. Yeah, and not only that, um, Genoa's study showed that all of the campaigns around the world that reached 3.5% of the population in that country or above, they were all successful. all successful. They were 100% successful. And only the nonviolent ca- campaigns were able to reach that amount. So there's this growing trend right now so that in the last 50 years, nonviolent campaigns worldwide have become increasingly successful and common, while violent campaigns are increasingly rare and unsuccessful. And that's because it works. So the 3.5% is an important number. In Grant County, where we have about 30,000 people, that translates into how many? 1,050 people. And we had 500 people show up in the cold, in the sleet, for our... Horizontal um, sleet, Horizontal sleet, <laughs> painful, cold, horizontal sleet, right. just at the, at the January 21st March. walk. Yeah. yeah. So that number makes it sound as though, with respect to important projects here where we live, just to take an example that's close to your heart, Alicia Edwards, ending hunger and poverty, it makes you think, we could actually do this, doesn't it? It does, and I think think that's exactly why Chenoweth's work shows that that nonviolent movements are successful is because people actually believe that they work and that there is tons of irrefutable evidence that shows that the tide will turn. And I think it's really important. People have to understand. They have to know in their own minds that what they're doing is having effect. And I think from a strategic point of view, if you can talk about it in that way, it will only take 1,050 people to make this change, for example. Or in this country, it would only take 11 million people organized, strategically organized, to change what's happening. And I think 11 million people is something that people can wrap their minds around. Yeah, especially when you think nationwide, again... On January 21st, all the women's marches, they were, uh, I think it got to three and a half million. And those were just the people who got out in the streets. That, that's uh, only a portion of the people who totally supported that. Right. So it's doable. And just for clarification, this research does not mean reach three and a half percent 
and you go over the tipping point and you have succeeded. It means 3.5% of the people who are dedicated, resolute, willing to work, and continue working. But that is what it takes. You don't have to have 48% or 53%. It's like Margaret Mead's small group of thoughtful, committed citizens. That's right. Well, and involvement, the 3.5% is really, it doesn't mean that everybody has to participate in every action. One of the of the great things about these larger nonviolent movements is that there is room for people to sort of uh, jump in when they're up for it and step back when they're not, because there's plenty of people to do the work. And I think I think that's a great segue into some of the other research that uh, Laura has, I think, is planning on talking about about who can participate in nonviolent movements. And that really, because violent movements are predominantly young, strong men and possibly women, uh, which limit who can participate. And so Laura has, I think, some very interesting things to say about who participates in nonviolent movement. Let's take a short break and return to that point when we come back. Stay with us. listening to Civil Discourse on Gila Mimbres Community Radio. My guests are two longtime activists in nonviolent projects for change, Laura Ramnares and Alicia Edwards. We will focus next on the openness of nonviolent movements to people of all groups spanning age, educational, economic spectrums, and we'll also talk about why it's important to have a, an explicit commitment to nonviolence. What happens to a nonviolent movement when it develops or welcomes a violent wing? Why do nonviolent action campaigns need strategies and training? And finally, what's happening now? Is there evidence that powerful nonviolent movements exist in the world, in this country, and are gaining strength? So, Laura Ramnares, can you talk to us about the openness of nonviolent movements? to everyone, not just young, vigorous people who can pick up a weapon. Yeah, well, there's several factors that enable nonviolent campaigns to succeed. They, they present fewer moral obstacles because the truth is most people don't like to commit violence. And that's a good thing. Isn't that the kind of world we want to live in For sure. <laughs> altogether? Uh, nonviolent campaigns are more inclusive in terms of gender, age, class, race, political party, and across the urban-rural distinction. And as Alicia said, the violent campaigns rely mostly on young, strong men. With nonviolent campaigns, there is more opportunity to disseminate information and provide education, which is hard to do if you're hunkered down in the woods with your guns. Okay, You're not isolating yourself so much. And it's easier to gain participator commitment due to lower risk and impact on daily life. You can still hold down your job, take care of your kids and, and those kinds of things, and still have a really huge impact. And also, nonviolent movements are much more likely to cause backfire against the re repressive regime because it's very shocking to people that there's a moral shock when people using peaceful, nonviolent means are violently attacked. So these higher levels of participation 
then contribute to the enhanced resilience of the campaign. Because like I was saying, people can drop out and drop back in. And there's greater probability of tactical innovation because you have all those extra brains working on it. There's increased opportunity for civic disruption because, again, you have plenty of people. There's also a, a sense of safety in numbers. The visibility of protests and other actions attract more active and diverse participation from ambivalent people. So the shy people are more willing to come out because they've got a lot of company. There also tends to be shifts in loyalty among opponent supporters. The security forces might not mind being seen as the villain by a handful of scruffy malcontents, but they do not want to be seen as a bad guy with their neighbors, their their family members, their coworkers, and members of their church. Alicia Edwards, would you like to add anything to that? I think she said it all, actually. I think that's just a really important thing to remember is that, and I I just want to go back to something you said earlier about how we are in the United States. And this is, I'm not going to quote research to back this up, so this is more anecdotal. But I think, you know, we live in an, an environment that financially benefits from this idea of violence. And I really think that it is an idea of violence much more than it is a commitment to violence. There are certainly... Lots of people who want to have their guns and, you know, that sort of thing. But the majority of people in this country, I don't think, are fans of violence per se. And I would just reiterate what Laura is saying is that much broader participation and that people are much more likely to come out and be involved and feel safe to speak their piece in a nonviolent situation. And I think even people who may be thought of as advocates of circumstantial violence will often express regret. You'll hear someone say, I have a number of weapons. I really would hate to shoot someone, but if anybody threatens my family, out comes that gun. What they're saying there is, I wish I didn't even have to think this way or feel this way. And so given an opportunity to feel that their family is not at risk, they might feel that they didn't have to have so much loyalty to those weapons for that purpose. Well, I, th- I think that is, I think that's a clear validation of my point yes. that really that violence is about making money. And so what happens when a nonviolent movement has a connection to a violent ally? Um, does that make the nonviolent movement more or less effective? What does the research show on that, Laura Rundarese? Well, uh, Chenoweth's research shows that nonviolent movements that develop violent flanks are much less likely to succeed. Again, that's those 300 and some cases from 1900 to 2006. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely critical for a nonviolent movement to maintain internal nonviolent discipline and to actively plan for the possibility of violent eruption within their ranks. So there is one place, and I don't remember the location. I think it might have been Egypt when they were having their really big protests, like 10,000 people out in the square. The Arab Spring. The Arab Spring, yes. They made arrangements with taxis so that if someone started acting out violently, a group of people would surround them and just gently usher them into a taxi, and the taxi would take them four miles away. And drop them off. (laughs) So they were active in preventing violence from even appearing to be a part of their movement. Yes. So they're not just dealing with the external 
threat, an opponent, but they're really responsibly managing their internal dynamic and that commitment. I think that's a great segue into the idea that what makes nonviolent movements successful is their strategy and their training. It takes a lot of discipline and a lot of forethought to have the plan to put somebody in a taxi and drive them, you know, four miles away. Um, a general wouldn't march his troops into battle unless he had a plan to win the war. It's the same thing for nonviolent struggle. It's just as complex as military warfare. Its participants must be well-trained and have clear objectives, and its leaders must have a strategy of how to achieve those objectives. This is a quote from Jamila Rakib, the executive director of the Albert Einstein Institute. And I think it absolutely says what needs to be said about that. You must have as good or better strategy and tactics and training. And training. um, There is a myth we might debunk about Rosa Parks. Excellent. Where people say (laughs) Rosa Parks was a working woman who was tired and her feet hurt, and she finally just said, I am sitting here. I'm not going to the back, and I'm not going to stand. And the reality, I can tell the story. Someone else could. Rosa Parks was active in her community. She was active in her local chapter. She was the secretary of the... NAACP chapter. She had been to what was called citizenship training, which was training for nonviolent resistance to racist oppression. This was a savvy, well-equipped woman who knew that when her moment came, she would call on the preparation that she and thousands of other people had given themselves... And it was not an impulsive act by a thoughtless, tired person. It was a response to a long-standing circumstance of oppression for which she had prepared meticulously. And therefore was highly successful. Yes. Absolutely. Serge Popovich, the leader in the Otpor movement, said that you can have a spontaneous uprising or you can have a successful uprising, but not both. That's very good. And I think, you know, the spontaneity comes in the beginning when people are outraged and freaked out and, you know, they are like, oh, we have to do something right now. But what you have to do is you have to be ready to channel that into strategy and training. So let me ask a question that may lead us into concluding this discussion on a note of optimism, which to many listeners may sound like a note of lunacy, but... Are powerful nonviolent movements rising now? What are the prospects for nonviolent social change in a world severely at risk? 500 people marching down <laughs> Bullard in horizontal sleet. Okay. I mean, yeah. from that to the biggest so. movement you can possibly think of. Yeah, our, our country has much more going for it than most of the countries researched for Chenoweth's study. We're used to being able to speak our minds. That For us, that's normal. And having a say in our laws and an imp- implementation of those laws. And however flawed, we do still have a functioning court system. Our media is as free as it determines to be. And we've hit big bumps in the road as a nation, but we have so many resources available to us that I personally have no doubt that we can emerge from these struggles with a healthy, functioning democracy. And we can do it with compassion for our fellow citizens, because we're all going to have to live together, 
right? <laughs> and with an eye to, to living together in something resembling harmony. In fact, isn't that one of the sources of power of effective nonviolence, that no one is put beyond the community? We recognize that if we're ever to have real peace with justice, there must be a place for everyone. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, as, a, as opposed to courts that impose penalties on mm-hmm. people who've done heinous things, right. help to keep open the possibility of exactly that word, reconciliation, being made real. Yes, because we're all in this together, even when we don't agree. Well, and I think one of the things that I think is really interesting is um, people are really, really energized right now. And I think if we can channel that energy and continue to do what Laura's, you know, continue to find hope in what we have done in the past. I mean, look at the kinds of movements that have come out of the United States. We have incredible power as people and the ability to to bring it on. Incredible power as people, the power of nonviolence. This will not be the last discussion that you hear on this program. You have been listening to Civil Discourse, a public affairs production of Gila Mimbres Community Radio and KURU 89.1 FM in Silver City, New Mexico. Thanks to my guests, Alicia Edwards, Laura Ramnares, for being with us. Thanks, Jamie, Thank you for very much us. for having us. For helping us to understand the effectiveness and the benefits of nonviolent strategies and action campaigns. On our website, gmcr.org, we'll post links to resources that people interested in this topic may find useful. And I'd like to remind you that Gila Mimbres Community Radio is supported entirely by the community we serve. Please help us keep real news, locally produced programs like civil discourse, great music, and cultural programming coming your way by becoming a member and donating. Thanks to our audio engineer, Kyle Johnson, and thank you for listening. For Gila Mimbres Community Radio and KURU 89.1 FM, I'm Jamie Newton.